And let me invite you as you are being seated to join with me in a time of prayer together. Let's bow. Father, we thank you today that we can come to you because of Jesus Christ. And we have nothing more and need nothing more than Jesus as our mediator, as our savior, as our Lord. And so we come today to lift up our petitions to you, God. We, we praise you for this great salvation that we have because of what Jesus has done. And God, I pray, I pray that we today would be reminded, and I pray every day that we would be reminded that you've commissioned us as your people, those of us who are confessing Christ as our Lord and Savior, that you have called us, you've commissioned us to do one and only one thing, and that is to make disciples, those who become followers and grow as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, God, that in this church, we pray that here we would see a great multiplication of disciples, more disciples and better disciples of the Lord Jesus And Father, I pray specifically as we focus in this year on more discipleship that we would have and that you would raise up a hundred members from our church who would take the initiative to invite a couple of other people to read the Bible with them so that in that context there can be mutual discipleship so that we can encourage each other, so that we can teach each other and so that we can even reach out maybe to coworkers who don't know you and lead them and help them to understand what it means to know and follow Jesus Christ. God, we pray for 300 people in our church or connected to our church who will be engaged in discipleship and relationship that is strong and deep with others for their good and for our good together. God, we do pray this for your glory. But Father, we pray not only this for our church, we pray that other churches in our area that are faithful to your word would also engage in this great work that you've called your people to. And so today we lift up Hillsview, EV Free Church. We lift up Rimrock, EV Free Church, and Parkview, EV Free Church here in our city. And we pray for those pastors. I pray, God, for Ron McLaughlin, the pastor of Hillsview, For Ben Green, the pastor of Rimrock, for Dave Greenhood, pastor at Parkview. God, bless these men as they lead these churches and bless these congregations as they strive, as we do, to make more and better disciples of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we also think today of other churches that are a part of the association that our church is a part of. We pray for Connection Church in Spearfish, Connection Church in Belfouche, Connection Church in Sturgis, as well as Connection Church in Sioux Falls. Thank you for this network of churches all coming out of one, the the church in Spearfish. God, thank you for this church that's committed to multiplying churches. And I pray, God, that you would help us to continue to be a part of planting churches so that there is a multiplication of disciples and a multiplication of leaders for your glory. God, we pray for the pastors of these churches. I pray for John Ballard the pastor of Connection Church in Spearfish, for Stephen Carson in Belfouche, for Aaron Blankenship in Sturgis, and for Jonathan Land in Sioux Falls. God, thank you that we 
are not the only church striving to do what you've called your people to do, and I pray that you would bless these churches and others that strive to do what you've called your people to do. So God, help us to be a part of that in this congregation. And God, we pray also today, not only in our church and for more discipleship, but also we pray for more prayer. We continue to pray that you would help us to see the necessity and the urgency of prayer and that we would as a church be more committed to it. God, we think about the truth of the matter that when entire congregations decide that prayer is their greatest resource, that those churches will not stay the same for long. And we pray that for our church. God, help us more and more to understand that prayer is the greatest resource we have. And I pray understanding that, that we would change and that we would never, ever be the same again, that we would grow. And so, Father, I pray for more private prayer among the members and believers who are a part of this congregation. I pray for more corporate prayer as we come together, especially on the first and third Sunday evenings for prayer. God, would you bless that time of corporate prayer? And Father, finally, we pray today for more power through more prayer. And we specifically think of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. And God, we lift this prayer to you this morning as we prepare to hear your word. We pray, God, that according to the riches of your glory, that you would grant us to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in our inner beings. And we pray this so that Christ might dwell, might make himself at home and be completely at home in our hearts through faith. And that we together being rooted and grounded in love, that we would have strength to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And God, that we as your people today would be filled with all the fullness of God. God, with all of your fullness. God, use your word today to empower us to do what you call us to do as your people. And God, to draw people to Jesus as their Savior today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, please. And as was said earlier, we're coming to the end of our study, our series through the book of Hebrews. And so turn, please, and follow along in Hebrews chapter 13. We'll begin in verse 17, and we'll go to the end of the book of Hebrews, verse 25, this morning. We're calling our message today some final words. We come to the final words, some words that are the final words in this great book. But before we read this text, I want to remind you of a question that was asked on the road to Emmaus. Some of you may remember that after Jesus' resurrection, that he appeared to two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize that it was Jesus. And the Bible tells us that Jesus began to speak to them, and he began in Moses and then in all the prophets to show them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament scriptures. And then a little later, these two disciples finally realized who it was when they recognized that it was Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus disappeared. And then one asked this question that I'm using as we begin this morning. Did not our hearts burn 
within us as he opened to us the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament scriptures. I want you to think about that question as we come to the end of our study through the book of Hebrews. Did not our hearts burn within us? I use that question as we come to the end of our series because what Jesus did with those men on the road to Emmaus was this. He showed them how to read the Old Testament. He guided them to help them understand the Old Testament and to help them see himself, Jesus, in all of the Old Testament scriptures. And in many ways, that's what the book of Hebrews has been about. One author said this, that the book of Hebrews teaches us how we should read the Old Testament. And I think that's true, and I think that's what we've seen. Another one said that it is the most Old Testament book in the New Testament. And I think that's true also. So as I thought about those two, the book of Hebrews helping us to understand the Old Testament and how we should read it, and Jesus on the road to Emmaus helping those two disciples understand the Old Testament and see how they should read the Old Testament, I think it's likely that there was a lot of overlap between what Jesus said to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus and what we have been reading and going through together and studying together as we've made our way through the book of Hebrews. And I can tell you this, for me, my heart, as we've gone through this book, has burned within me. There's something about seeing Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures and helping us to see the narrative of scripture from beginning to end and that Jesus is at the center of it that causes the hearts of those who have been born of the Spirit to be ignited with joy and with love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And essentially, what I think Jesus said, and we're told this actually in Luke 24, to those on the road to Emmaus is this, you should read your Old Testament and you should see me in all of it. You should read your Old Testament, Jesus, I think, essentially said to those two disciples, you should read your Old Testament and you should see me, Jesus was saying, in all of it. And the book of Hebrews basically helps us to see that. We should see Jesus in all of the Old Testament and we should see Jesus as above all that is in the Old Testament because Jesus is better, better than all that came before him. And so in some ways I'm sad Honestly, today as we come to the end of this study, because it has been a great study as we've made our way through the book of Hebrews together. And as was mentioned earlier, next Sunday our schedule will change. Instead of having our service at 10.30, we'll have our service at 10 because we won't have any of the classes that we normally have throughout most of the year this summer or during the summers. We've done this for a while. We won't have any of those classes beforehand, and so we'll begin at 10 o'clock this next Sunday morning, and we'll begin in Psalm 56, and we'll make our way through, I think it's 15 psalms this summer that we'll have between the two holiday weekends, the one coming up this weekend and then the other toward the end of the summer. So let's look together with that in in mind and said, and let's look at these verses at the end of Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. 
Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that your brother, or our brother, Timothy, has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greeting. Grace be with all of you. As we come to these last words, these final words, I want you to notice several things. First of all, I want you to notice some final words of instruction, then some final words of exhortation, then some final words of benediction, and then finally, some final words of conclusion. He finally comes to his conclusion at the end of this section. So let's look, first of all, at some final words of instruction in verse 17. Some final words of instruction. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What is his instruction here as we come to this last part of our study? The instruction is this. His instruction was this, that they would obey their leaders. He's instructing those who receive this book, and he's instructing them and telling them that they should obey their leaders. The readers should obey their leaders. Now, I want you to think about verse 17 with me for just a second, and I want you to notice a pronoun. It's the second word in the verse. Obey your leaders. Obey your leaders. Now, how can a Christian do that? How can a Christian do what this verse says, obey your leaders, unless as a Christian you have a church that is your church? How can you do this? You can't. This is one of the reasons that it seems so clear to me that the New Testament assumes and implies that every believer, that those who believe will belong to a local church. We, we, we said the words of our church covenant just a few minutes ago. And I want to encourage you, if you're a person who is committed to Jesus Christ, you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you don't have a church home, we would love for you to consider the possibility of becoming a covenant member of our church. Or another great church that we, the kinds of churches that I prayed for earlier and that we pray for often here in our church. But we believe biblically that those who believe 
will belong to a local church, that that's something that the New Testament implies. And we see that in this verse. That's something that the New Testament assumes, that they will belong to a local church in a way that implies both accountability and commitment. Obey your leaders. That's accountability. There's a sense in which when you become a member of your church, when you choose the church that you're going to join with, the people that you're going to covenant with, to serve God with, then you have leaders and you are accountable to each other as well as to your leaders, as this text says. Now, one of the things that's interesting to me is how the word leaders is used three times in this 13th chapter of Hebrews. As we come to the end of the book, it seems to be something that the author wants to emphasize to those that he's writing to. As we saw last Sunday in verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 13, they were told that they were to remember their recent leaders. He says, remember those who spoke, past tense, who spoke the word of God to you. And then he talks at the end about the outcome of their faith, implying that now they have died and they have finished faithful. And he's saying, remember them, consider their lives, and follow their example. So he speaks about recent leaders in verse 7, and then when we come to the beginning of our text here in verse 17, he's talking about now current leaders, those who are leading the congregation at the time that the book of Hebrews would have been read. He's talking about pastors and elders. Every Sunday on the back of the bulletin that is available for those who come in, there are pictures and names of those of us who are pastors and those of us who are leaders, or elders rather, all of us leaders together of this flock because God has called us to do that. And as I mentioned last week, I hope you'll continue. I said this last week, I hope you'll pray for us as we try to pastor, as we try to lead God's flock. Verse 17 says that leaders are those that keep watch over our souls. The word pastor means shepherd, and that's the imagery here. Just like a shepherd watches over his sheep, a pastor and elders are together to watch over those whose souls have been placed under our care. You see, those of us who are elders in this church currently and pastors, we have, we have both the responsibility to shepherd and to steward those that God has given us. Notice it says that we will have to give an account. We will have to give an account for how we have shepherded and how we have stewarded God's sheep Because as we'll see later in this text, he, Jesus, is the great shepherd. We're not. We're under shepherds. Jesus is the great shepherd, and this is what we have been called to do. And the writer of this book is talking about pastors and elders, leaders, who were teaching them and leading them, the people receiving this letter, to believe the theology that's laid forth in this book. They were teaching biblical Christianity, and so he wanted them to obey, to follow these men who were leading them so that they might might not do harm to themselves. Notice he says, that would be of no advantage to you. That's an understatement, right? To not obey biblical teaching and to follow biblical leaders 
is not only not an advantage to those who do that, it's actually something that's very dangerous because this book makes it clear in so many warnings that if you don't believe what's being taught in this letter, if you, and this is the context for the letter, these Jewish background believers, those who are Hebrews and who've professed faith in Christ, are finding it hard to continue to maintain their faith in Jesus because they're being pressured by family and friends who've not confessed Christ and who are still going through the rituals of the Old Covenant. And the book makes it very clear that if people who have once confessed Christ turn away from Christ and seek to confess or cease to confess Christ and never repent, that there are great warnings for those who do that. And so that's the context behind this word of instruction that we have in verse 17. Now notice a word of exhortation in verses 18 and 19. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. This is an exhortation and plainly stated this was his exhortation that they would pray for him, the man who wrote this book, the book of Hebrews. So verse 17, his instruction was that they would obey their leaders. Verses 18 and 19, his exhortation was that they would pray for him and for those like him who were teaching God's people. By the way, I think verse 18 is an incredibly important verse because in some ways it captures in one statement the qualifications morally for those who would be leaders in a church. Notice what he says, we have, we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. This is what God calls leaders and saints, those who are members, those who profess Christ to do. Let me take just a second to talk to you about your conscience. I want you to understand something that's important biblically about your conscience. He says here that he wants to always have a clear conscience. Is your conscience infallible? No. Is your conscience inviolable? That is, should you ever violate your conscience? No. One person said it like this, your conscience is not always right, but it is always right to follow your conscience. And we see that as we study the way this term is used in the New Testament scriptures. For example, we know that in, Corinth, in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, that some of the Christians at Corinth had been taught certain things that caused their conscience to make them overly scrupulous. That is, their consciences would condemn them for things that weren't really inherently wrong. And yet he says in those contexts that they still should not violate their consciences. And so that's a very important thing for Christians to remember, that we should never violate our conscience. And he says here that that's something that he doesn't do. Or at least to have a clear conscience means that you don't violate your conscience, but if you ever do, you immediately repent. And you have a clear conscience then by confessing that to God. And then he says he wants also to, to act honorably, desiring to act honorably in all things. That's not something that just elders and leaders are called to do, though. 
You see, one of the problems we have and misunderstandings I think that we have in the church is that we think that the elders have a standard here and the rest of the Christians have a standard here. That's not what the Bible says. The standard is the same, but it's absolutely essential that if men are going to be elders and pastors in the church that they are living the standard that everyone is supposed to live. And so all of us are called to pursue a clear conscience, to keeping our conscience clear and to striving and desiring to live lives that are honorable in every way. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I hope this morning, if you claim Christ, that you have a clear conscience this morning, that there aren't things that you've done that you know in your conscience and have been convicted in your conscience to have been wrong that you have not yet confessed and repented of and asked God for grace and for power to not continue to do that which is contrary to your conscience. One other thing that I think is pretty interesting here in this exhortation, when he exhorts them to pray for him, the essence of his exhortation, he does this and notice what he says. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, that is to pray for me, to pray for us, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now what does that imply? It implies that he believes, and as a writer of Scripture, this is true, he believes that their prayers could make a difference in how soon he would be able to come to them as he desired to do, personally be with them, to encourage them, to teach them. This brings us, of course, face-to-face with a dilemma that we quite often experience when we think about God and man, and particularly prayer. This verse, which is sort of just a, almost a out-of-the-way verse, and what he says here in, turning, in terms of going to them sooner, introduces us to the mystery of prayer, the mystery of human causality and divine sovereignty. I don't know if you've ever thought of it. When we pray, when we pray, does it matter? I mean, if God is sovereign... And he has a plan. Does our praying matter? Does prayer change things? The answer is yes. In light of this text, he believes that if they pray, and then he, after asking them to pray, he comes back and said, I urge you more earnestly to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. He believes that their prayers can make a difference in how soon he's able to come to them. And we see this elsewhere in Scripture. Right after the book of Hebrews is the book of James. And in James chapter 4, verse 2, the writer of James says, You have not because you ask not. Folks, that can't be interpreted any other way than this. There are things that we don't have because we did not ask for them. And there are things that if we had asked for them, we would have them. That doesn't mean everything we ask for we will have. But at times, there will be things that we don't have because we didn't ask for them. And things we would have had if we had asked for them. Prayer is a mystery. In our mind, divine sovereignty and human causality through prayer are incompatible 
But according to the Bible, they're not. They're both true. Here's the point. Pray. Your prayers matter. My prayers matter. They make a difference. And you and I ought to pray for each other and for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Look also, thirdly, now in verses 20 and 21, at some final words of benediction. One writer said he believes this is the most beautiful benediction in the Bible. And I think that I could go for that, quite honestly, as I've thought about this this week. Verses 20 and 21. Here the writer is invoking a blessing from God upon those he is writing to. And he says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, By the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. What an amazing blessing he invokes on this this congregation. I want you to see three things real quickly in this benediction. First of all, the source of this benediction. The source of this benediction is, according to this text, the God of peace. The God of peace. What does that mean? I think it means at least two things. That he is the God that possesses peace and the God who produces peace in the lives of those who trust in him and know him. He's the God who produces peace within us and he's the one who produces peace among us as his people. Even in times of tension, and that's the context for the book of Hebrews, there's great tension because their families who've not confessed Christ, who are Jews, are pressuring them to renounce Christ, to disown Christ. And so in this time of tension, the writer reminds them as he gives this benediction and invokes this blessing that the God that they serve and worship through Jesus Christ is the God of peace. But he's also described here as the God who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the source of this blessing. The source of this great blessing is the God who raised Jesus from the dead. And then finally we're told here that he's also the God who is the great shepherd of the sheep. As I mentioned earlier, he is the chief shepherd. Those of us who serve as pastors and elders, we are under him and under his authority the source of this blessing, God. Secondly, I want you to see this in this benediction, the meaning of this blessing, or excuse me, the means of this blessing. Through what means does this blessing come to the people that this book is written to and to you and me? Through what means? Well, the Bible says it's by the blood of the eternal covenant. By the blood of the eternal covenant. That means the blood that Jesus shed on the cross, which established an eternal covenant. One of the themes in the book of Hebrews is that there was the old covenant that we see in the Old Testament, but now there's a new covenant, and here we see that it's an eternal covenant. It's an eternal covenant. Our sins, when we believe in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. There is perfect forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ, particularly his death, as a sacrifice for our sins. And then later he says here, continuing to think about the means of this blessing, he says, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. So Jesus Christ 
is the means of this great blessing, and particularly his death is the means. His blood that was shed for us is the means to this blessing becoming those who believe in Jesus Christ. In these last two verses that we've just looked at, we have the gospel, right? The benediction is the benediction of the God who raised from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the resurrection. And here, there's the crucifixion, right? The blood of the eternal covenant. The good news is that Jesus Christ, according to the Bible, died for our sins, and we can be forgiven, and we can have an eternal life and eternal relationship with God through the death of Jesus Christ. And we know that because God raised him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead to demonstrate and to make evident that Jesus was who he said he was and he did on the cross what he said he would do. And that is atone for the sins of the world. Jesus said, it is finished. And God said, amen, by raising him from the dead. Everything that needs to be done for your salvation has been done by Jesus Christ. And so this is the means of this great blessing, particularly the blood of Christ. In just a little while, as we said earlier, we'll be having communion And those of us who've trusted in Christ, we will receive these elements that remind us of his broken body and of his shed blood, which is the basis for us knowing God's blessing. And thirdly, I want you to see this real quickly in this benediction, the essence, the essence of this great blessing. We've seen the source, the means, and now the essence of this great blessing. What is it? That they would be equipped, that these believers would be equipped By God, equipped by God, he would work in them that which was pleasing in his sight. Now, a benediction is a blessing. And there's a connection the Bible is helping us to see here. There's a connection between our doing his will, God's will, and experiencing joy, experiencing peace from the one who is the God of peace. As we work, as he works in us, and as we more and more do his will, we will more and more enjoy and experience peace, God's blessing in our lives. As we please him, we find pleasure if we have God's spirit within us. The elders are reading through a book together, and we came across this past week in our elders meeting a quote that I want to use here that I think is important. We cannot claim to be believers and yet knowingly, repeatedly, and happily break God's law. If we have God's Spirit within us, God's Spirit, God by His Spirit, is working within us so that we might do His will. And though we fall short, there is that desire to do His will. There is the desire, as we saw earlier, to act honorably in every situation. We don't do that but we don't knowingly and repeatedly and happily break God's law if God's Spirit's within us because we grieve. We mourn when we violate God's will and God's word. Finally, I want you to see the conclusion, verses 22 through 25. It's like he's having a hard time wrapping it up because usually a benediction is the end, right? But he just wants to say a few more things. And here we see several things. 
Here we see several things in this conclusion. We see, first of all, in verse 22, an appeal. An appeal. An appeal that they would receive his exhortation. That is the book of Hebrews, that they would receive it, that they would bear with it. That is, that they would believe it and keep believing it. An appeal. Verse 23, an update. He gives them some news that they would probably be interested in. That Timothy had been released. Evidently, he had been in prison. We're not told anywhere in Scripture why or how, but we can assume, I think, that it was probably because he was a follower of Jesus. That would be encouraging to these Hebrews who were facing something like that, possibly, if they continued to confess Christ. Timothy had been released, and he says, he'll come with me when I come to see you, if he comes to me soon. In other words, if he gets here soon, I'll wait, and we'll come together, but I can't wait too long. I want to come as soon as I can. And so that's what he's going to do. And then at the beginning of verse 24... A directive, a directive that they should greet all their leaders and all the saints, that is one another as well as the leaders in the church. They're directed to greet each other. And in Bible times, a greeting was often a holy kiss. Now, that's not the way it is in our culture. We shake hands. But in that day, it was a little bit more affectionate and uh, a little bit more intimate, so to speak. The point is he wants them to love each other. He wants them to act and express and exhibit their love for each other. And so he directs them to do this. And then finally, at the end of verse 24, he says, he gives a greeting. That is, he greets them from some who are from Italy. Now, this is an interesting little phrase here. What most people believe this means is this, that the writer is writing... And there are those with him wherever he is writing who know these people because they've come from Italy and they're where the writer is now. And so on their behalf, he's greeting them, which may imply, and many people believe, that the recipients of the letter of Hebrews were in Italy and maybe even in Rome. And so he says this, he gives them a greeting, and then finally, he finally gives us the final benediction, another benediction In verse 25, and it's a super short one, grace be with all of you. Why does he give another benediction? I think because grace is the source of all blessings. Grace is the source of all blessings. The blessings he talks about in 21, or excuse me, 20 and 21, are rooted in God's grace, God's undeserved favor to us. Here's my question this morning. Have you received this grace? Have you turned from your sin and have you put the full weight of your hope on Jesus as your Savior? And is it your desire to act honorably in all things? Is it your desire to have a clear conscience? Those are the the evidences of being born of the Spirit, of really believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we come now to the Lord's table, I want to invite you, if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do something before you take these elements if you haven't already done it. Clear your conscience. Ask God to show you Ask God to show you things that maybe you have said or done in the last days or weeks that you haven't dealt with yet before him, that you've not confessed to him. 
clear your conscience. And then praise him for what he's done for you in Jesus Christ. His broken body, his shed blood are the means for our forgiveness. And for those who haven't yet or aren't sure yet whether you have believed and trusted in Christ and are a Christian, I would encourage you to let these elements pass and to observe as others who have that hope and who have that confidence receive these symbols of Jesus' death. And maybe as they're doing something symbolically, you do it really, actually, in your heart, receive his death, his broken body, his shed blood. Receive it as your own, personally. Trust in him. Ask him to forgive you of your sins as others around you who have done that are remembering what Christ has done and the basis of their salvation. Let's bow and let's pray. Father, as we come to the Lord's table, as we come to remember and to rejoice in what you've done for us in Jesus, I pray those of us who have believed that we would do this with a clear conscience, genuinely repenting and desiring to turn from our sin and asking for your mercy and for forgiveness and rejoicing in the fact that you do forgive those who are your children by faith because of the death of Jesus. Thank you for this grace that you have shown to us through Jesus Christ, through the blood of the eternal covenant. We celebrate that and we remember and rejoice in that today in Jesus' name, amen.